you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. I'm Rob Hutchinson and today we're chatting with Derek Lewison who describes himself in a rather broad sense and has achieved many, many things. But today we're chatting to Derek about uh, conservationism. And uh, Derek is a dedicated conservationist and has uh, owns and operates one of the world's largest private rhino reserves, which is responsible for more than 300 rhino, over 15,000 acres of land. And he has been uh, instrumental. He's been driving change with the current conservation arena by helping governments and private reserves separate the true legal frameworks governing the potential trade in rhino horn from the misconceptions that currently block such trade. Derek, good afternoon and welcome to, to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to have you on here in a rather, rather different show. And I, I was going to say a, a veer from, from what we normally do. However, it's not. It's, we're talking about uh, significant legislation and um, the potential impact that it has on the environment, which you are uh, currently in, involved in and, and intimately involved in. Um, perhaps, perhaps give us a bit of, of background as to, to where you came from and the influence that you hold in, in the sector. Uh, fair enough. So I actually come from an academic background. I'm a, a bit of a, uh, a left-wing academic nerd, um, and, uh, and and fell into this by accident. So I was uh, I left academia, went to the corporate world, um, did a number of things there, including selling a software company to Google a couple of years back, uh, and uh, and then you know, got to a point where uh, I wanted to do something a bit more meaningful, uh, and uh, learned a little bit about rhino conservation, and realized that this is the most unnecessary extinction in the history of mankind. But uh, there are a lot of voices, a lot of opinions in this arena, and I figured I needed a seat at the table um, you know, if I was going to be heard. So uh, we, we took the money we had and we invested it all into trying to save Rhino. And uh, that's how we ended up uh, owning this reserve. And um, you know, there are a lot of people in the Rhino conservation space who are, are uh, better uh, at animal husbandry, more uh, uh, well-versed in, in conservation arts, let's say. Um, but there, there wasn't an abundance of uh, insight into legal frameworks and strategic frameworks. And, and so I found myself uh, as a bit of a, an industry spokesperson. Industry is a terrible word, but, uh, uh, but for want of a better one, uh, you know, a spokesperson for um, uh, those of us in the rhino conservation space uh, from the private side. No, definitely, and I note your hesitation and distaste for for the corporate world, and that seems to be a, a common trend among among serious serious activists, where you find your passion yet have the the background of of a, a conservative and a corporate corporate world to assist you in in approaching government, especially on on legislative matters. And that definitely does does create a, a, a significant impact in the way government approaches it and recognizes these these issues. All too often we faced with um, let's say radical conserv- conservation groups or, um, or or other bodies that they try to push an agenda, but in in a way that government can't recognize. So it's good to see that that your approach and concerns are are being raised in. In a, in a proper manner. And also good to see that you've, um, dedicated your, your life to, to tackling what is a very serious issue in, in South Africa. So 
I don't even know where to begin with this because there's just so much that that goes on with with Rhino and the poaching are thereof and the conservation issues and so many different opinions that seem to be brought forward as to what the best solution solutions are. Um, there's a lot of talk around uh, farming isn't sustainable or uh, or so on, but you have a different approach. What what is that really? Well, so I, I think what might be most helpful is to start out just with some basic facts for the listeners. You know, some of the folks out there will know this. Um, many of the folks will not know all of it. And it's important that we at least get uh, the, the key information on the table, because uh, you know, while I encourage everybody to come to their own opinion and form their own views, it's really vital that we start doing this from an informed base. So the first thing I'd like to share with folks is that conservationists trim the horns on rhino on a regular basis. And there's a, a terrible word out there, uh, dehorning, as if you know, one is actually removing the horn in some sort of grotesque surgical procedure. Horn is hair. Uh, it grows out of uh, you know, the protrudence uh, on the end of the nose. And, and there is live tissue and blood supply at the base. But beyond the base, like your own hair, it's devoid of feeling. It's dead tissue. Uh, and we trim it. Not, not for the reasons most people think, which is to deter poaching, because the truth is, you know, we live, we leave about three kilograms on the base because we don't want to hurt the animal. So we, we trim above the live tissue line and a poacher will take that horn in a heartbeat. Uh, so it's not really to deter poachers. We do it because it stops rhino from killing each other. Um, and that's what rhino do with their horns more often in nature than anything else. Rhino kill each other more commonly than any other African mammal. So. Wow. Uh, yeah, so on our reserve, we've we've actually never lost an animal to poaching. There have been a lot of attempts, and I don't want to minimize the danger that we face here, but but we've never actually lost an animal to poaching. We've lost nine so far to natural causes, and five of those were because other rhino killed them, and it was because we were um, inadequately proceeding with the trimming of the horns. So we trim it uh, uh, you know, to keep them from killing each other because as conservationists, our first goal is to keep as many rhino alive as possible. The trimming is painless and harmless. So it happens, as I said, above all the live tissue. We tranquilize the animal, take them down, uh, trim the horn, reverse the tranquilizer, and they're up and running. Um, the third thing, and it's really important that people understand this, is that it grows back constantly, repeatedly, rapidly. So if within another two years we don't trim that animal again, it will have a fully formed weapon. Within three years, you won't be able to tell the animal was ever trimmed in the first place. Um, now, they live to 45 years, so there's a cycle of trim, regrow, trim, regrow, et cetera, that we go through constantly. Um, and with you know, several hundred rhino under our care, you can imagine that we need to trim pretty regularly just to keep up. Um, so we take it off painlessly, harmlessly. It grows right back. We have to do that to keep them from killing each other. And the end result of that is that it's left us with a massive stockpile of horn that is currently rotting in storage. Um, and how big is that? Well, uh, you know, we figure there's about 90 tons in Southern Africa uh, that is in storage, and we're adding to that to the tune of about 14 tons a year. And to put that into perspective, poachers in the worst year we've ever seen have taken five tons from South Africa into Asian markets, or from Southern Africa into Asian markets. Five tons. Now, we produce 14 a year, and we have 90 in storage. When you run the math, what, it's, what, what emerges is that we could send seven times more horn into Asian markets every single year than they've ever received through poaching without a single animal ever being hurt again. And in the process, we would generate roughly a trillion rand for South Africa over the course of five years. 
Now, those numbers are complicated. They're not in, uh, obviously intuitive, um, and, and I'd be happy to take everybody through it. I don't think we're going to do that today. Um, but if, you know, if your listeners wanted a, a more in-depth conversation, um, you know, we, we could probably facilitate that. But uh, that's, that, that's the key insight that drives um, you know, the direction that we're advocating. You know, we're tired of fighting, losing battles on the poaching front. Um, we're tired of you know, demonizing cultures for pursuing a, a product they think is, is helpful and necessary when we could use that demand to radically transform. And I know those are loaded terms. I shouldn't be using them, but, but to actually radically transform South African culture. You know, we can achieve our conservation goals. We can achieve our transformation goals. We can achieve our economic goals. Um, but we are, you know, we're crashing on the rocks of misinformation. And, and that's just a tragedy. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I, I just want to make sure the listeners understand. You know, words are weapons, and they're often, in this case, used to deceive the public. So there's a lot of language thrown around about farming rhino and captive breeding of rhino. Um, and, and these terms are not technically incorrect, but they are emotionally incorrect. Um, you know, we have hundreds of rhino on thousands of acres. These creatures are wild. Um, yeah, I can promise you that I've run for my life on, on several occasions um, when the tranquilizer is reversed and the animal decides that he's uh, you know, kind of pissed off that I'm in his space. Um, you know, so these animals are not tame. They're certainly not in a feedlot environment. They roam free and wild in land that used to be agricultural 30 years ago um, and is completely returned to the wild now. Um, you know, I have rangers on motorcycles and on foot constantly patrolling our perimeter. So I can't have lions and elephants on the property uh, just because it, it, it would be grotesquely unfair to my staff. Um, but we have 16 leopards uh, on our property. We have giraffe, kudu, you know, impala, zebra, wildebeest. This is wild Africa. And these animals roam it freely. They choose who to mate with. Um, you know, they, they choose where to go, who to hang out with. Uh, so... You know, it's important that people understand there is no such thing as a caged rhino in the private reserves. The closest thing you'll see to that is obviously in a zoo. Um, you know, and those animals don't breed because rhino, when they're not happy, um, you know, they won't breed. So if your goal is conservation and, and therefore obviously to breed as many baby you know, rhino as you can, um, the rhino force you to give them a wild and free life or they don't, they don't satisfy your objectives. Uh, so, so those are the important things I wanted to get on the table for people. And I think the other thing perhaps that, that folks need to understand is, um, you know, that this, this is conservation. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, you know, people, uh, uh, living out some sort of, you know, God fantasy. It's not a commercial enterprise. Um, it is, it is very real conservation. And at this point, it is the only conservation of rhino left. So Kruger has quite publicly admitted that they've lost 70% of the rhino in their care. Um, the, that's actually in tw up to 2019, uh, over the last 10 years. They say they've lost 70%. Um, that's escalated now to the point where we believe it's closer to about 85 to 90% of the rhino that were in all government hands uh, are dead. And that's so they've incredible. gone it's, – it's, it's awful. They've gone from about 18,000 rhino to about 2,000 rhino in 10 years. Now, over that same time period, private conservation reserves like ours and others – have grown from about 3,000 rhino to over 9,000 rhino. So at this wow. point, you know, we've gone in 10 years from government having 18,000 and private individuals protecting 3,000 to government having 2,000 and private individuals protecting 9,000. 
So we very clearly are the only conservation model that is working. And you know, to destroy that work is to doom rhino to a very unnecessary extinction. Absolutely. Sorry, I've got a I've got a three year old inbound in the background, uh, and she's a little unhappy that she's being called in from playtime. So I hope your listeners will forgive me, um, but she's, she'll move on shortly. <laughs> no problem, no problem. I've got, I've got a dog that that steps in here anyway. So there's an environmental show, so we can we can talk about background noises and and whatever's happening out there. Now you mentioned some incredible figures there: ninety tons of rhino horn in storage that is valued at yeah. About so now that's obviously a guess. It's a little bit of a guess because, quite frankly, you know, we all suspect that the vaults are being raided by. Uh, insiders in government, and, and some of that horn is, is most definitely being sold out of the country. Um, so we know what we expect to be in there. Um, we may be off by five or ten tons, but it won't change the nature of the conversation. There is so much more horn in storage ready to be sold, and it's rotting, and it's costing this country and the individual private reserves uh, millions every single year in secure storage. Um, and, and And it could instead be used to change the nature of you know, the direction of travel for this country. A trillion rand could do almost anything for South Africa. Oh, it could do, it could do a, a hell of a lot, and we most certainly do need it right now, especially with um, trillions going missing and uh, budget deficits yes. and, and so on. There's, there's no doubt about that. But that, that brings it into question, should that, that kind of access and that kind of uh, wealth be in, in the hands of the government or will it just go missing or should it be controlled by the private sector and then distributed and in, into the market as, as such? Does, does this policy that uh, our Minister Creasy has just recently put out um, – does it cover the private sector's involvement in in the rhino horn and the conservation and, and farming? Well, so it it, it, it does address it. Um, you know, I, I think let, let's help listeners understand the policy itself. It, it's up for uh, comment right now, which is what makes your interest in it so timely. Because you know, quite frankly, we desperately need the people of South Africa to understand what's on the table and to take action. This policy is derived from. Uh, a panel the minister uh, put together about 18 months ago, which she refers to as the high-level panel, which was itself quite a deeply flawed process. Uh, you know, when they put that panel together, they studiously excluded every single expert from mm. that panel to make sure that it was uninformed. Um, the outcome was predetermined. It was chosen you know, by the minister, and, 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 and we believe by certain you know, very vocal special interest groups. Uh, the participants were selected to deliver that. When some of those participants tried to educate themselves on the facts first, the issues were literally taken away from them. In the last six months of that panel, uh, it was just a small group um, of the panel that actually wrote the report so that the political appointees could control the output. Uh, the end result is, is a bit of a schizophrenic mishmash of conflicting material, inconsistent messaging, and it's led to this policy um, suggestion, which is incredibly vague. Um, and and you know, if challenged legally, would fail comprehensively because it, it they obviously didn't meet the consultative requirements that are uh, constitutionally mandated in this country. Um, there's another constitutional mandate for rationality. Uh, and clearly, um, you know, one of the things the policy says is that captive breeding. So that's that's what they call us. Uh, and I, I, I want to, you know, again, remind viewers or listeners of, of the weaponization of language Um you know, captive breeding is, is, is a legal term, but it hardly defines um, what happens on a wild reserve with wild running animals. Um, but 
they want to do away with, with uh, what they've termed captive breeding uh, altogether, which is to say they want to do away with, with private conservation. Um, that, that's not going to survive a rationality test because private conservation is the only conservation that is uh, succeeding. Um, and then there's Section 24 of the Constitution that guarantees South Africans the right to sustainable utilization of the wildlife resources. There's nothing sustainable about what's happening in Kruger, Shishlui, Umfalozi. Um, you know, that savagery that has taken rhino down from 18,000 to 2,000 in government hands, um, that's not sustainable, and I don't think anybody could argue to the contrary. Whereas you know, managing to grow your population from 3,000 to over 9,000 is obviously sustainable. So it'll fail on, on a on a you know, constitutional basis. Um, but but we all know that in South Africa that's only half the story, or maybe even less. <laughs> um, you know what, what what really matters. Uh, although maybe Jacob Zuma is finding to his uh, his dismay that, that the constitution <laughs> does matter. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think what what really is important is is we now need to motivate the South African people um, to to ha- to be heard to say you know look we're all for. Um, yeah, I think we're all in favor of some basic principles, right? Mm-hmm. We all That's want okay. to see our wildlife conserved. We all want to see these animals treated with dignity. Um, we all want to be proud of the way, you know, we hand this world over to our children. Um, you know, that's, that's what got us into this in the first place. And, and I know that all the people out there, including the people with whom I vigorously disagree on policy, still nevertheless hold the same out, you know, eventual goals. We want to see our wildlife saved. Um, you know, all I would urge people to do is to learn the facts and not to allow this weaponized language to distort their understanding. You know, what, if you walk into, um, uh, if you stand outside a, a crash, um, a, a preschool, and, and you start shouting to passersby, you know, who stands with me against child sexual exploitation? Um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people say, I stand with you against child sexual exploitation. Um, and, and they're going to falsely believe that, that you're casting legitimate aspersions against the, the institution you're standing outside simply because you're there um, when you start that conversation. You know, who's against animal cruelty? Well, we're all against animal cruelty. But the panel um, uh, report and the policy itself admit that there's never been a single instance of animal cruelty reported uh, in rhino, private rhino conservation. Um, you know, even the more, the much more contentious and emotionally volatile issue of lion breeding, um, which is sometimes done in more confined spaces than the thousands of acres that we, we have our rhino roaming upon. Um, even there, yeah, I know that the department investigated something like 40 uh, uh, um, operations so far and found not a single one operating below uh, ethical and humane standards. Now, I don't know what those standards are, and I'd encourage people who are interested to find out and to decide for themselves whether those standards are high enough. I don't know, but I do know um, I do know that, that that there are ways for us to manage when people misbehave without doing away with the only conservation that's working right now, and that's what this policy would do. Well, well, that's that's absolutely it's, it's eye-opening, and and you're absolutely correct. It is it is all about getting the facts out there and understanding. The, the, the different approaches and um, misconceptions and managing those misconceptions, which are often pushed forward by by government. We're going to take a quick quick break, and we'll continue this uh, enlightening uh, conversation when we return. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. 
because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. Uh, Today we're talking with uh, Derek Lewitton about the often misconceptions around conservationism and the laws that that affect uh, true rescuing of of the environment and uh, rhinos in in particular. So, Derek, you mentioned um, the high level panel that was set up by by Minister Creasy, and you know, following the outcomes of of that uh, high level panel discussion. The lion farming has been extensively unpacked with the uh, with the perhaps desirable decision to stop lion farming in captivity uh, for many reasons, but the main purpose being uh, over commercialization, which is uh, perhaps to the species' detriment. Um, in your opinion, how how will this be managed differently with uh, rhino farming to avoid the same scenario taking place? You know, given Given the attractive uh, financial gains in a in a personal capacity, and perhaps by by a government. Let's talk briefly about the lion stuff, which I'm not an expert on. I don't have lions, as I said. I certainly don't farm them. Um, uh, but but I do want to just highlight in this policy that we're discussing. Um, there's a there's a particular line um, that I think highlights the level of honesty and integrity that this policy reflects. Um, and the line is here, there are major concerns over work conditions and safety of workers and tourists and zoonotic risks, including from COVID-19. Now, <laughs> and this is with respect to lions. <laughs> I, I, I don't know a single credible scientist or even armchair scientist uh, in this world who has ever drawn a line between lions and COVID-19. Um, you know, there were desperate attempts um, by uh, you know, various lunatic fringe elements uh, to draw a line between uh, pangolin uh, and, uh, and, and COVID-19. Um, and I, I, I'd pause to mention that we have hundreds, if not thousands, of pangolin living wild and protected on our reserve. Um, and they're protected because while we protect the rhino, everything that lives there is protected under our security umbrella. Um, I'm a big fan of the little, little fellas. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they had nothing to do with COVID-19. Lions certainly had nothing to do with COVID-19. And it's this sort of alarmist nonsense that, uh, that, that is used to misinform the South African public and to drive people in a certain direction. Um, now, having said that, uh, there are fundamental differences between how lions are, uh, uh, um, you know, treated in, in, in the, um, you know, farming of them and, and the hunting of them and what happens with, with rhino. Um, uh, you know, rhino are, um, they're like the, they're like golden sheep, uh, right? We, you know, nobody kills a sheep to get its wool. Nobody in their right mind would slaughter a sheep to get its wool. Um, you know, you, you harvest the wool and it grows back, uh, and you keep that sheep alive as long as you possibly can. Uh, rhino are the same, right? You know, if, if we go to a model where the horn that we are taking off anyway to keep them from killing each other, uh, can be sold, there would be nobody in their right mind who would ever allow a rhino to be killed again. Uh, you know, why would you if you know that every year you're going to get about a million rands worth of horn off that animal? Yeah. Lions, awesome. elephants, leopards, um, you know, these animals are, are killed to be, you know, for want of a better word, harvested. For the economic value to be recognized, um, you know, their death has to be an element in that. That's fundamentally not true for rhino. You know, they're these magical creatures. You know, it, it, it bothers me when people draw 
parallels between them and unicorns and then you know, uh, you know, whatnot. But but they are magical creatures in that you know, they're uh, they produce this this material which you know stinks to high heaven and is you know not the coolest material ever. This horn um, that that for whatever reasons other cultures value and they produce it in a way that they don't have to be harmed. And that horn can buy them safety and security. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, people who don't do this for a living, um, you know, make up nonsense like, well, you know, throwing the horn into the market will uh, you know, spur demand. There's not a single economist on the planet uh, who would agree with that. And I know this because we've spoken with you know, with all of the, the, the serious economists in this country. Davi Ruet, Azar Jamin, Mike Sassrolfs in the wildlife space. Um, you know, the, the overwhelming consensus is that when you're throwing seven times the current supply into the market, you're fundamentally diminishing demand uh, or the ferocity of demand. You're going to bring the price down. But that's not even the magic here. We don't have to diminish demand to win. We simply have to fund protection. Saving rhino from poaching is easy. We've done it. You know, John Hume's farm and John Hume, who gets vilified in the press repeatedly, is um, a, a giant in my eyes because this man you know, breeds 200 baby rhinos every single year out of the 2005 rhino he has under his protection. Um, you know, that there wouldn't, if there wasn't a John Hume proving that this could be done, Derek Levitin would not have gotten involved in it. Neither would a bunch of other people. Um, but he hasn't lost a rhino in four years because he has radar systems and thermal cameras in place around his perimeter and a rapid reaction force to respond if an incursion is attempted. Vickers Diedrichs down in the Northern Cape hasn't lost an animal in six years because he has a similarly intelligent system set up. When you combine private property rights, you know, an interest in protecting what you've invested in with the right kind of funding to buy the right technology, Poaching is over in a heartbeat. You, know, the, you, you don't see people um, succeed when, when the, the anti-poaching efforts are properly funded. You see them succeed on the reserves that are struggling financially, as all of us will be eventually if, if we're not allowed some source of income here. Um, so the big difference between lion and rhino, I guess, to sum up, is, is that mortality is required in the one case to uh, create economic benefit. And it's absolutely not required and not, it's completely contraindicated in the case of the rhino. You know, even the, 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 the hunting of rhino, which is legal in this country, um, and, and has, um, you know, counterintuitively led to, uh, the, uh, the significant increase in rhino populations in private hands because originally when government had a handle on conservation, that was why private individuals bought rhino so that they could be bred for hunting. Nobody in their right mind would ever allow a rhino to be hunted again if they were making more money off the horn than they could ever make off a hunt. Absolutely. It's almost the the old fable of the goose that laid the golden egg. Why would you why well, would you kill kill the manufacturer? Yeah. It's it's amazing how we've forgotten hundreds if not thousands of years of, of philosophy. But as that that being said, we have to take a quick break to to pay the rent, but we'll be right back <laughs> afterwards to discuss some more. <laughs> You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. We're talking about the environment and the seemingly questionable uh, policy paper that has been put out for, for public comment, especially around, which hovers around conservation as 
and within lions, elephants, and in particular rhino. So we're chatting with with uh, old Derek Lewiton. Sorry, I didn't mean to say old, but <laughs> so I tend to it's talk about true. myself. I'm grateful for radio. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, but anyway, you you, you raise some fantastic points, which um, the public and myself were really uh, un- unaware of, and that is uh, around the the um, amount of rhino horn that is actually in in storage and the value thereof, and the influence it could possibly have on the market if if we if we released it in, into the market, and there's no doubt. I mean, Austrian economics will, will tell you that the market demand creates the price, and if you flood that market, then the price will will definitely come down. De Beers gave us that perfect example. There's enough diamonds for everyone. But they restrict the, the the market flow to to create value. The same will definitely apply to to rhino horn. You know, I, and I honestly believe that that you're correct in this. We need to get these kind of facts out to the public, and get them to 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 understand it. Place pressure on government to form the correct policies that do. Uh, influence desirable outcomes and ultimately save save species from from extinction. Um, do you have any uh, anything planned for for this as far as this policy goes and getting uh, your views across? Uh, how, how can the public get involved in in, in so on? Well, we do have several steps we're taking. You know, it's kind of a portfolio approach strategically. Um, you know, we are engaged with government, um, and they've they've recently indicated. Uh, a, a willingness to engage further um, with the creation of three working groups, actually working with those of us who do this for a living and who have succeeded at it. Um, one, to, to transfer the key learnings of, you know, to government as to why we're succeeding and, and, and Kruger and others are not. Um, two, uh, to talk about how we can leverage this economic opportunity to achieve real and meaningful transformation and, and empowerment in communities that have not historically been part of the conservation uh, uh, benefit scheme. Uh, and uh, and then three, uh, you know, to have a realistic uh, working group assessing the opportunities for trade, because you know, there's so many excuses given for why we can't. The most common, of course, being uh, that CITES uh, obstructs that trade. Uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that I was actually the legal advisor to two former secretaries general of CITES. Uh, and I can tell you categorically that CITES does not obstruct this trade uh, at all. And in fact, I taught a class uh, uh, to MBAs about a month ago with the head of legal and enforcement for CITES, Mr. Juan Carlos Vasquez, and he expressed his absolute astonishment that we are uh, still acting as if there's a ban and a prohibition on trade instead of responsibly moving forward. So, so we've got those three working groups uh, to try to put reality and facts on the table. Um, we're also beginning, you know, and, and this is an area in which um, I have no expertise, and so we're so grateful to folks like yourselves uh, who step forward and, and, and you know, give us more insight and guidance into how to get the message out there. But we're taking our first halting steps towards engaging with the public and saying, guys, this is, this is your country. These are your animals. This is your conservation. This is your future. Um, this is your economy. You know, please get involved. Be heard. Uh, because you know, we talked earlier about the weaponization of language, but you know, when, when government puts out there that we're going to put an end to uh, canned lion, hunt, lion hunting and you know, the caging of rhino, um, you know, please give us your comments. Of course, they're going to get swamped with millions of South Africans saying hurrah. 
Um, but the truth is, is that, <laughs> that what they're really trying to do is nationalize private conservation so that these animals are subject to the same slaughter as they are in Kruger and elsewhere. Um, and that's an, that's a disastrous outcome. So we're, we're, we're starting to work with the public through, uh, your platform and, and, and others, um, to get that message out there. Um, we're also, uh, you know, reaching out very, uh, energetically to, to the communities, um, that have been, uh, marginalized in the past. You know, one of, I think, the most important elements of what we need to do is to bring those communities into the conservation benefits. Um, and so uh, we've actually launched what we hope will become the largest black empowerment and upliftment trust in this country, at least out of private individuals, um, where uh, a lot of us are, are, are committing rhino from our own uh, uh, populations into this trust. Uh, so that um, you know, when when they are trimmed to keep them from hurting other animals and to keep other animals from hurting them, um, that horn can be sold for the benefit of projects to to uplift specific communities in specific ways, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and we hope therefore to also get them involved in the conversation. That's uh, great. Yeah. So okay. yeah, we're pushing think... along all of those. All of those. And then, sorry, I'll say the last thing is we're, we're of course preparing. Um, you know, the, the legal approach, you know, one, one can't be naive. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes the courts are your only, your only savior. We hope not to go that route, but we obviously have to prepare for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Derek, it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation and something I think that we should actually continue, uh, next, next week or, or sometime soon. Thank you for, for your time and, uh, we'll hope to, to catch you on, on another episode of Dear, Dear Parliament. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.